It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 334 for the 17th of March, 2013. This week, YouTube or Vimeo? A TechBiter Worldwide benefit? Placing Google and privacy in the same sentence. And in short circuits for Apple, a nasty case of deja vu. Electronic Arts simulates a disaster. More warnings that future wars will be fought online. And how secure is information that businesses store? Let's take a look at that benefit first. Recently, I described how Macrium Reflect saved the day when a video upgrade managed to scramble some important files on my computer's C drive. That rendered the system unbootable. Saul Painter at Macrium liked the story and offered a 20% discount to TechBiter readers and listeners. The only catch is that you have to act before the end of April 2013. You'll just enter the code shown on the TechBiter Worldwide website when you get to the Macrium checkout screen, and your discount will be applied. You'll find a very large coupon on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if for some reason you can't get there, here's the code. Q-U-F-Q-D-Z-W-D-A. Feel free to share the coupon with anyone even those who don't listen to TechBiter Worldwide or visit the website. And now let's consider video. Video for everyone, in fact. Which do you prefer for videos, YouTube or Vimeo? YouTube is, of course, owned by Google and brings with it all of Google's baggage, including the growing insistence on the use of real names. And if you post videos, what differences exist between YouTube and Vimeo? Because of an increasing interest in video, this seemed to be a good topic to explore. I'll come back to that baggage question later, but first let's consider some of the operational characteristics of the two systems. YouTube has more videos than Vimeo, but that may not be entirely good. As Yogi Berra once famously said about a restaurant that he didn't go to, nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. YouTube has a similar problem. Simply trying to find a specific video among the clutter is challenging. Vimeo, on the other hand, tends to play the part of PBS while YouTube is Fox or ABC. Vimeo cares more about quality, both technical quality and content. Serious videographers are more inclined to post their videos on Vimeo simply because the videos look better. Both services do offer HD video, and HD video has the same number of pixels, regardless of where it comes from. So, why do videos look sharper on Vimeo? It's not a question of the kind of sharpness that a videographer can add in post-production on Vimeo, but a lack of expected sharpness on YouTube. Eugenia Lowley ran some tests to compare the two services, and they explain, in plain English, with a few diagrams, why Vimeo's videos look sharper. It's because they are sharper. Mathematically, the frame differences are small, but they're visible. For HD video, Loli said Vimeo seems to have found a sweet spot at 4.6 megabits per second. Quality is indeed stellar and better than our Comcast cable box, 
but she admits that even Vimeo could do better. I'd love to see Vimeo supporting 5.1 audio in 1080p, she says, bringing the bitrate at 5 megabits per second overall. So if you're a videographer who wants to showcase your work in the better setting, Vimeo is the hands-down winner. But if you're a videographer who wants your video to go viral, YouTube is the only viable choice. So which service is better may depend on what you hope to achieve. Both sites allow comments, but I rarely view the comments on YouTube because they quickly degrade into poorly written, misspelled insults. Many of the comments on Vimeo, though, deal with technical issues, and they're actually phrased as discussions. Vimeo has more of a community feel, while YouTube seems to be more about throwing raw meat to a pack of hungry, feral cats. Vimeo offers members two options. One of them is free. And for zero dollars, that's the kind of account I currently have, you are permitted to upload 500 megabytes of video per week. That may seem like a lot, but high-quality video files are huge. Free users may upload one HD video per week, and the player options are somewhat limited. Free users are at the back of the line when it comes to transcoding videos, too, and that means your video won't be available until at least an hour after your upload ends. The Plus account costs $60 per year, or $59.95 in marketing speak. It unlocks some extra features. You're now at the front of the line for transcoding, so your videos will appear sooner. You'll be allowed to personalize your area, and the banner ads go away. The upload limit goes up to 5 gigabytes per week, and you can upload as many HD videos as you want. Vimeo is, as I mentioned previously, not the place to post a video if you want to make money with it or have it seen by everyone on the planet. It is the place to post your video if you'd like to receive positive feedback and read rational discussions. And I mentioned that baggage that comes with YouTube. If you want to have a YouTube account, you first have to have a Google Plus account. I have one, but there are reasons why somebody might not want to have one. This gets into security and privacy issues and just how much Google might actually know about you. That's a topic I looked at last week, and if you missed the program, you'll find a link to it on this week's TechBiter Worldwide. Another concern, and calling it an annoyance wouldn't be too extreme, is the advertising on YouTube. You can try to disable ads, but you'll still see some of them. Granted, Google needs to find a way to monetize its services because Americans seem to have a built-in bias against paying for any online content. But the number of ads is a significant detriment. YouTube's screen is far too busy, too. You're watching one video, but the right side of the screen is enticing you to see others. Now again, Google does need to monetize the service, and one way to do that is to find a way to keep people on the site for longer periods so that they'll be exposed to more ads so that Google can charge more. But really, I don't want all those distractions. It's kind of like trying to concentrate while ignoring a chorus of hungry cats. <laughs> See what I mean? So, when it comes to declaring a winner, I'm going to wimp out. Choosing the better service is difficult. In fact, it might be impossible. In many ways, this is simply a case of each being what it is. Choose one or the other, or both, 
depending on your needs. Some people think of libraries as old-fashioned places that are filled with books at a time when nobody reads. Well, that's wrong. Although books are a key part of what libraries have to offer and people do still read, libraries are more about information than they are about books. No matter how the information is stored, libraries and librarians are the ones who manage it, organize it, and safeguard it. Libraries have served the nation well, and with any amount of good luck, they'll continue to do so. Both the Worthington and Columbus Library Systems have been named Library of the Year by Library Journal, Worthington in 2007, Columbus in 2010. That says something about the administration of those two library systems, but it may also say something about the people of Central Ohio who support their libraries. The Columbus Metropolitan Library is one of seven libraries nationwide that have joined Hoopla. That's a service that provides free streaming videos for library patrons. For residents of Central Ohio, anyone with a Columbus, Worthington, or Grove City library card has access to the system. Nationally, the participating libraries include the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Library, Hartford County Public Library, Los Angeles Public Library, Orange County Library System, Seattle Public Library, and the Toledo Public Library. The Hoopla system is currently in beta mode, and the selections are limited. Enough videos are present for testing. Hoopla says they have thousands of movies, television shows, audiobooks, and CDs available for library patrons to stream or download. And note that thousands applies to all media types combined. Probably there are no more than a few hundred movies and TV shows right now, and most of the movies offered seem to be low-budget films that you've probably never heard of, while the TV shows look like late-night fare from small cable TV networks. Music and audiobooks will be downloaded so that they'll be available even without an internet connection. Video content, though, is available only as streaming content. Hoopla was formed in 2011, and the first libraries began offering it in January of this year. So what you'll find is a new operation that's admittedly still in beta. But one would assume that Netflix and Blockbuster are already applying pressure to studios not to do business with Hoopla. To view the videos in a browser, you'll need to install a player application from Google. Widevine is the video player that Hoopla uses, and it's a free add-on. If Widevine isn't installed when you attempt to play a video, you'll be directed to the Widevine website. The installation process doesn't properly close all instances of Firefox during the installation, and this may possibly affect other browsers too. If you try again to play a video and Hoopla continues to report that Widevine is not installed, close the browser, making sure that all instances close, and then reopen it. You'll be fine. And there are magazines, too. Lots of them are available, and you can download them using Zinio. I haven't been a real big fan of Zinio, and that attitude hasn't changed a whole lot. When I tried to create an account, the confirmation message from Zinio never arrived, even though I had it sent twice. But once that was straightened out, everything worked well. New editions of magazines have downloaded largely without any problems, and much faster than with the Nook Reader from Barnes & Noble. If you haven't been to your library's website lately, 
now might be a really good time to drop by and see what's new. Asking whether placing Google and privacy in the same sentence creates an oxymoron seems a fair question. After all, Google knows what you search for, knows what's in your email, knows what videos you watch on YouTube, might even know what phone numbers you call and who calls you. There's no question that Google offers dozens of useful services, but the cost of those services is measured in the value of information that you willingly provide to Google. Nearly three years ago, there was a lot of publicity when Google's Street View cars were found to be collecting more than just Street Views. They were also collecting Wi-Fi information along the route. An engineer had decided to use the cars to accumulate data from any unencrypted Wi-Fi networks that the cars happened to encounter anywhere around the world. He didn't ask his supervisor for permission or even mention the project. Google didn't see this as a privacy concern, though. To Google, it was a management problem, and in the intervening years, Google has tightened its internal controls, including naming Alma Whitten as Director of Privacy for Product and Engineering. She heads a team with more than 300 employees. Google employees are now trained explicitly in privacy, and engineers who are in charge of projects must document the processes more fully. The documents are then reviewed by internal auditors with the goal of fully understanding how a Google product deals with users' data. That's not enough, though. Attorneys general in 38 states have created documentation that tells Google what it should do to ensure higher privacy standards. The guidelines include education for Google engineers and attorneys. The recommendations were the culmination of a two-year investigation. Google has agreed to abide by the recommendation. The attorneys general won't monitor Google directly, but they do have the option of reopening the case with Google if they feel there are problems with implementation. Google doesn't want to be Microsofted, to coin a term. In the mid-1990s, the Department of Justice sued Microsoft and nearly broke the company up as it had done with the Bell telephone system decades earlier, and with Standard Oil many decades before that. Microsoft is still a large, powerful company, but it never really quite recovered from its run-in with the Department of Justice. But besides possible prosecution, Google needs to be concerned about the court of public opinion. Companies such as Google can use social media to build their brand, but... Disgruntled users can use those same social media to tear down a company's brand. There's a certain sense of deja vu here. In 2011, Google signed a consent degree with the Federal Trade Commission in which it agreed to be audited by an outside firm every two years for the next 20 years. That case dealt with Google's unauthorized use of users' Gmail data in the Google Buzz social network which is no more. In short circuits, 
Speaking about deja vu, here's kind of a nasty case of it for Apple. Remember when Apple all but invented the personal computer only to see IBM and the various IBM-compatible computers take over the market? That seems to be happening again. But this time it's with smartphones and tablets. A research paper released by IDC, a company that concentrates on analyzing high-tech businesses, says that Apple is running out of steam. Phones that run Google's Android operating system are already outselling Apple's iPhone, and surprisingly, IDC predicts that Android tablets will overtake the iPad this year. Already, Apple has dropped from owning all of the market to having just 51% of it as of 2012. This year, IDC says that Apple's market share will drop to less than 49%. Many of the Android devices are small and light. About half of the Android tablets sold now have a screen smaller than 8 inches diagonally. Consumers seem to like the smaller devices, and manufacturers are obliging by turning them out in large numbers. The iPad Mini tries to address that trend, but IDC says that the people who buy the iPad Mini would probably have purchased a full-size iPad if the Mini hadn't been available. So Apple is actually hurting its own bottom line with that smaller device. Unlike the early days of the PC, losing market share doesn't mean that Apple's going to find itself in the near-bankrupt position it was in in the 1980s. IDC agrees with Apple's expectation that the tablet market will continue to grow, and as more people replace notebook computers with tablets, Apple will continue to be profitable, even if it has a smaller market share. IDC says it expects nearly 200 million tablet computers will be sold in 2013, while computer sales will drop to about 350 million. By 2017, according to IDC, tablets and PCs will each have about half the market. SimCity is one of the longest-running electronic games in the history of personal computers, but now it's recovering from a problem that reduced the new version of SimCity to a pile of burning rubble. If you bought the new SimCity and found that you couldn't play it because the company's servers kept crashing, Electronic Arts says it will allow you to download some new games. I know that's a little contrived, says Lucy Bradshaw, who's the general manager of EA's Maxis label. She wrote this on her blog. She said it's like buying a present for a friend after you did something crummy, but we feel bad about what happened. The updated edition of the game was released a little over a week ago. Even those who play the single-user version of the game need to be online, and the crush of people trying to log on caused server crashes. Could it be, do you think, that Electronic Arts is still using the same hardware it had when it invented SimCity 24 years ago? Yes, that was hyperbole. Or snark. One or the other. Maybe both. Take your pick. Within a week, Electronic Arts had reduced the crashing problem by more than 90%. But as usual, when something like this occurs, the various social media were the venues where users went to vent their anger and frustration. Since its release in 1989, SimCity has been one of the company's biggest moneymakers. The updated game, for 60 bucks had received a lot of positive reviews before it was released. However, reviewers didn't have to deal with crashing servers. According to Bradshaw, more people played and played in ways we never saw in the beta. Apparently, it was a surprise to the company 
that more than just the beta testers might want to play the new game. The Australian Central Bank says it has been attacked by hackers but lost no data or money in the incident. Actually, it was more of an admission than an announcement. The Australian Financial Review had reported that the Reserve Bank of Australia had been attacked several times, successfully, and that information had been stolen. The bank's statement is a little bit short on information. I quote, As reported in today's media, the bank has, on occasion, been the target of cyber attacks. The bank has comprehensive security arrangements in place, which have isolated these attacks and ensured that viruses have not been spread across the bank's network or systems. End quote. The message said that no information had been lost and none of its systems had been corrupted. More information came from reports that were provided under Australia's Freedom of Information Act. The central bank received malicious email messages with the subject line, Strategic Planning, Fiscal Year 2012, in November 2011, and the virus was not detected by the bank's protective software. The messages were sent to high-ranking officials. Six of the recipients opened the file that contained the malware. The only thing that kept the malware from spreading was the fact that none of the users had been granted administrator rights on their computers. The infection was discovered within days, and the computers were taken out of service. The report said that the bank's computers could have been compromised by the attack, and had that happened, the result would have been system downtime and lost information. The FBI is investigating a website that posted personal information about people ranging from Michelle Obama and Joe Biden to Al Gore and Los Angeles Police Chief Charlie Beck. The data might have been obtained by Russian thieves, or maybe not. The information posted about a dozen or so government officials and entertainers included home addresses, social security numbers, credit information, and other personal information. Although the FBI is the lead investigating agency, state and local police are involved, as is the Secret Service. The site has a top-level domain that indicated Russian registration. That top-level domain is .su. The .su designation has largely been replaced, though, by .ru. The .su was assigned to the Soviet Union in 1990, but... In 1991, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. The SU top-level domain remains in use today, though, particularly by organizations that were closely related to the old Soviet government. The presence of the SU top-level domain is inconclusive, though. The domain is administrated by the Russian Institute for Public Networks, but as with many other top-level domains, obtaining the designation simply requires registering for it. ICANN had intended to eliminate the domain, but registrations have increased since about 2008, and so far it remains in use. 
Although some of the information posted on the Rogue website is public information, FBI Director Eric Holder's social security number, for example, is not. The site also posted what it claimed to be Holder's birth date, home address, and credit report. Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion provide credit reports to individuals via the web, but obtaining such reports requires in-depth knowledge about the person the requester claims to be. If the information is legitimate, the crooks will have found a way to start with public information and parlay it into increasingly private information until they had enough to pass muster via a credit reporting agency. Scary? Of course. Most people, though, aren't sufficiently attractive targets to merit such a serious effort by crooks. The high-profile people whose information was posted on the site would be unlikely fraud targets, too. But look at it this way. Posting the information is a good way for the crooks to prove just how talented they are. Consider it advertising. Security experts say that financial institutions generally do a good job of protecting data, but businesses often have lax security procedures that make it easy for crooks to obtain the kind of information they need to assemble in order to approach a credit rating site or a financial institution with sufficiently rich detail to prove that they are you. So if you were looking for something to worry about in the next week or so, there it is. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.